The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I you if you would to turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. This morning I want to sort of pull out from James a bit. We have been trekking our way through this brief letter of James. <clears throat> I suspect you found it as I have uh, moving through here. It's been uh, seeming at least like a sort of one gut punch to the next. And um, gets to uh, the, the time we get to chapter 4, start moving our way into chapter 5, we start to feel a bit, uh, a bit wounded and weary. Last week, we got to the end, really, of chapter 4, and we looked at this issue of planning and presumptuous living, looking to the future without regard for God, living as though we're sort of captains of our own ship, planning our futures without any sense for God, and spent our time looking at that, at that challenge, at that problem, at that sinful issue that sometimes, maybe more often than we would like to admit, begins to infect our hearts, and James gave a corrective at the end of that that we just sort of mentioned but uh, spent no time on. And what I want to do is reread that text. And I want us to focus solely on the application part of James's corrective or his response to how we should live as opposed to a presumptuous kind of living. I'll read the text and James tells us that the kind of living that we ought to live is a living that's lived according to God's will. You see it at the end of the text. Let's look at verse 13 and we'll just read to the end and go from there. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's a sin. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, sometimes as we navigate our way through life, it's clear to us what you will for us. There are other times when life is, is unclear, when it's foggy, when the decisions we face are uncertain. And we're not sure which way to go. And yet we desperately in our hearts want to live according to your will. We want to plan according to your will. We want to see the future according to your will. And yet even today we want to be walking in your will and living out your will. And we want to be able to navigate our lives in such a way that day to day we honor you and the choices and decisions that we make. And sometimes it's hard. So today, Father, as we look at the issue of your will and what it is and how we are to live in regards to it, we pray that you would just illuminate your word in front of us, put it together in a way that makes sense and is helpful to us. Apply your, your truth to us. Equip us, Lord, to walk out of here walking in confidence this morning that we are in your will. 
and living according to it, pleasing you with the decisions we make in our life. For your great glory, for the honor due to you and your son who died in our place, we pray. Amen. I think one of the most common themes that arises in pastoral counseling uh, is the issue of God's will. What is it that God would want someone to do? It comes up in a lot of different ways in sort of a counseling environment. Sometimes people are, are looking to the future and they're trying to make decisions about where to go, what to do, what job to take, whether to sell a home or not sell a home, whether to have more kids or not have more kids, whether to get married or not get married whether to take just this job or that job, or any of the other dozens of kinds of questions that we face in our life and decisions that we have to make. And oftentimes people are struggling. What is, what is God's will? I don't know what God would have me to do in the mix of all of this. And how, how do I figure that out? Sometimes it comes up in the issue where we're in a counseling environment and somebody is pursuing a sinful course and they will sometimes argue, I believe this to be God's will for my life. And so we have to stop and talk about, wait a minute now, you're believing God's will is for you to do something that his word has forbidden. How, how do we reconcile these things? It comes up in other ways. People are wounded sometimes and they're hurt and they're grieving Unpleasant things have happened in their life. Pain has entered the picture that they hadn't asked for. And circumstances have come their way that they didn't want and wouldn't have planned for themselves. And in the midst of their grief and in the midst of their pain, they're maybe even through tears asking the question, how how can this be God's will for my life? And they're second-guessing themselves quite often, and they're looking at their, at their recent past, and they're wondering, sometimes out loud, sometimes just quietly in the recesses of their soul, did I do something? Did I make a bad decision? Did I, did I do something wrong and somehow get outside of God's will for which I'm now somehow being punished by this pain? Maybe you've had those thoughts. Maybe you've had those kinds of things spinning in your mind as life circumstances have come your way. I think in some way, shape, or form, at various points in our life, we've all thought about and wondered about, what is God's will? And am I walking according to it? Am I in it? Am I out of it? Am I pleasing God with the decisions I make? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing? How do I know? How can I discern? And how can I figure these things out? They're important questions. They're important questions that have sort of remarkable, I think, practical applications in our life. When we understand really a biblical view of God's will and what it is and how we're to discern it and how it is we're to to live in light of it, uh, it it results in in a remarkable sort of a freedom and a remarkable sort of a confidence and a remarkable sort of contentment as we move through life with whatever comes our way. But if we misunderstand... We misunderstand. The results can be spiritually crippling. We end up racked with anxiety over every question. We end up immobilized and paralyzed and not able to, to make any decision or do hardly anything because of fear and anxiety. When negative things happen, unpleasant, painful things happen, we're tempted then to, to lash out at God and blame Him as though some, some sin has been committed against us by Him. 
And so these are not trivial matters that we talk about. These are not trivial things. When James tells us that we're to think of the future and plan and live our lives according to the will of God, it's not just a phrase to add on to a sentence, if the Lord wills. There's a content underneath that that needs to be grasped. There are several common mistakes or misunderstandings, I think, that creep up in in the body of Christ concerning the will of God that, that pop up from time to time sort of in patterns. And I just introduced them to you briefly this morning. One of them is just the one particular one that James introduces in James 4, and that's the issue of just blatant disregard. Often in the body of Christ, uh, we, we live with just a blatant disregard for God's will. We just live our lives, do whatever we want, think nothing of what God wants or what God wills or what God would desire or what He would uh, expect of our lives. We just live our own way and do whatever blatant disregard. James identifies that with those merchants and traders and to whom he's speaking at the end of James 4. And he describes that sort of a way of living, that sort of a, of a posture towards the will of God as being arrogant and presumptuous and foolish and ignorant. It's a living as though we are the sovereign ones in our lives, not God. We choose what we want to do. It doesn't really matter what he thinks. Perhaps we mistakenly believe he's unconcerned about such things. Another common mistake I think that I run across from time to time is folks who view God's will as sort of a tightrope. God's will is a tightrope. It's this very narrow little rope that I'm walking every single day and every single uh, minute decision of my life is either in God's will or out of God's will. I'm either on the tightrope or I'm off. As though God's will is, is, is particular and specific to every single decision of my life. Am I going to go to Arby's or Wendy's? I don't know. Which one's God's will? I don't want to be outside of God's will with my fast food today. Stress. and There's this overarching fear when we, when we view God's will as a tightrope that all the time it's hard to make a decision because I'm so terrified I'm going to be out of God's will and fall off the tightrope and land in some cavern where pain will come my way. It's a view of God's will that's far too narrow. It's paralyzing. It makes decision-making brutally difficult. It generates anxiety. It generates stress. It generates constant fear. Anytime something goes wrong in life, the reaction is, oh no, I must be out of God's will. I've stepped off the rope somehow. And in such things, God's will often becomes sort of a mystery a secret to be searched out and found. God's will is not a tightrope. Another thing I see is folks who just sort of live their own way, baptize their own will, and call it God's will. Have you ever seen that manifest? It's the idea of I just choose my own pursuits, I baptize them and call them God's will. If the tightrope is a, a view of God's will that's too narrow, then this is a view of God's, uh, God's will that's far too broad. It's just I do whatever I want. I just say, hey, it's God's will. Sometimes I also see folks who get the impression that God's will is some sort of a superstitious thing. It's like the, it's like the magic eight ball. Did you have that when you were a kid? With a little toy, a little eight ball thing that you shake up and it's got a little cube inside with different answers. You ask a question, you shake it up and whatever pops to the top is you know, supposed to be your answer to your question. Um, it's really, you know, a, a divination toy, I guess. But um, 
Call it what you wish. I had one when I was a kid. Blame my parents. Um, but sometimes people approach the Bible that way. You know, right? It's like, a, it's like the magic eight ball. You know, you kind of shake it up and you shake it up and wherever the Bible is, you just do this here. Oh, okay. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's God's will. That's actually superstition. That's not really living according to God's will. It relates to really that last one, which is sort of mysticism, sort of a mystical approach to God's will, that God's will is something that's purely subjective. It's based purely on things like feelings and signs and voices and putting out fleeces. And people who understand God's will to be something related along those lines are constantly waiting for some sign or waiting for some voice or waiting for some supernatural, mystical sort of a revelation to help them know what it is that God would have them to do in a particular situation. I think as we look at God's Word, we find that His, His will really doesn't fall into any of those categories. All of those things are sort of misunderstandings of what God's will is. But it's not always easy to understand what God's Word is talking about when it refers to God's will, and it requires us to do a little work. It's an issue that, at the end of the day, isn't terribly complicated, but on the surface, what we find in the Scriptures can seem confusing. In fact, it seems at times when the Scriptures talk about God's will, it seems that it's giving us mixed messages on the topic. A couple of examples would that would be. We look to the Old Testament and we see that God, God's will clearly revealed is that Abraham sacrifice his son. But we know the end of the story. And at the end of the day, God prevents the slaying of his son. So what is it? God was his will to kill him or was his will not to kill him? It seems that we see both. We know that God's word tells us that God's will is that the righteous not be condemned. And yet Jesus, the righteous son of God, was delivered over to be crucified by the will of God. So how is it that the will of God is for the righteous not to be condemned, but at the same time the most righteous one that ever walked was delivered over and condemned by God's will? It seems to contradict on the surface. The Bible tells us that God hates sin, that He's not willing uh, that, that it exists. However, the Bible also tells us that He ordains its existence and He controls it by divine providence. He ordained that Jesus be betrayed and crucified, yet he held the sinful men responsible who did it. So we see these sort of mixed messages, at least on the surface, and it leaves us pondering, how can I sort this out? Because at times it seems God's will, God's word is telling us his will is one thing, and at times it seems that his word is telling us his will is something else. The answer to that question is really a good place for us to begin our thoughts on this today. And the answer to that question is when we look to the Word of God and we begin to ask what does God's Word have to say about His will, the first thing that we have to understand to sort it all out is that the Bible tells us there are really two aspects of God's will. Two aspects of God's will. And we have to understand the distinction or else we'll always find ourselves confused. Now, there are lots of different names depending on who you read and so forth as to what these two aspects are called. I'm going to call them God's secret will and God's revealed will, simply because I think those are the most accessible words to use for those two things. Um, Other theologians use 
more theological terms that are harder to grasp. So let's just use secret because I know what secret means and I know what revealed means and I think you do too. But let's look first. What is this? When, what, do we, what am I talking about when I say God's secret will? There's a definition for you on the screen there. Um, God's secret will is just simply God's secret plan that determines everything that happens in the universe. By the way, just so you'll know if you run across this somewhere else, it's sometimes called his hidden will. Sometimes it's called his decorative will, which is another way of saying his will of decree. Sometimes it's called his absolute will or his sovereign will, but we'll stick with secret. Are you good with that? All right. Thumbs up if you're good with secret will. Okay. You moved. I know you're awake. Um, this will of God is God's, God's ultimate plan for all things. The, the Bible makes clear that God ordains everything that happens, and everything that ever happens happens according to his will. His, he has a will, a secret will, a will that isn't revealed to us except in snippets through predictive prophecy uh, that, that ordains everything that happens. It is absolute, it is unchangeable, it is sure, it is unstoppable. It encompasses everything that actually happens in time and history. The Bible makes clear that God is sovereign over all things, and nothing happens or occurs apart from His will. We see this in a multitude of scriptures. Psalm 33, verse 10 and following. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands, how long? Forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. In Isaiah 46, verse 9 and following. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Ancient think times, things not yet done. Saying, excuse me, I, I totally botched that. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will, what? Accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. Ephesians 1, verse 11, in Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What things does God work according to the counsel of His will? All things. This is catechism class all of a sudden, right? All things. He works all things. This is God's secret will. In His secret will, He works all things according to counsel. There's nothing that happens. There's nothing that's worked. There's nothing that's done that falls outside of the will of God. One of the most startling examples of, of a man realizing this is in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. And by the way, we're introduced here to a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who is an Old Testament king, who is an exact sort of uh, poster child, if you will, of the merchants and tradesmen that James speaks about in James chapter 4. Someone who had planned his whole future with no concept of God and no regard for God whatsoever. One minute we're seeing this king in Old Testament, the book of Daniel, standing on top of his castle looking out and saying, wow, look at my kingdom and the things that I've done and all these great things that I've done for myself and my power and by my strength. Taking credit for everything that's going on in his life as though somehow he's responsible, as though God has nothing to do with it. And God, in very stunning and startling ways, you could read this in Daniel, uh, 
humbles this king, uh, turns him into a, something like a wild beast with feathers roaming around, just humiliates this guy in incredible ways. And at the end of it, he comes to his senses. And here's what he says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and following. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar got a real good dose of the secret will of God. And he came out the other side understanding the reality that God does what he wants and there's nobody that can alter it or change it or challenge it. God has an ordained will and he's ordained the end from the beginning and everything that happens happens according to that will. No man can change it. No man can alter it. No man can thwart it. No man can redirect it. It's immutable. It's absolute. And it's also mostly hidden from our view. We have no call in the Scriptures to seek this out or to try and understand it any further than what God gives us. He gives us snippets of it in predictive prophecy. He tells us some things that are going to happen as a part of His predictive will, but just snippets. And largely, we only understand it in retrospect, looking backwards over things. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us this. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. It's actually a great segue from the secret will of God to the other aspect of God's will. His revealed will. His revealed will. There are some things that are secret, that belong to the Lord, that He keeps to Himself, and there are other things that He chooses to reveal to us. Again, His revealed will is often called other things. You may see it called His moral will. You may see it called His prescriptive will. You may see it called His will of command. But a good definition of it is simply the commands and principles which God has revealed in the Bible to teach how people ought to behave and to live. It's God's revealed will. He has revealed to us how we ought to behave and how we ought to live. He's made this part clear. And one of the things that separates this from His secret will is that God's revealed will can be obeyed or not obeyed. It can be submitted to or resisted. We can do it or not do it. Now, when we look at this aspect of God's will, and this is the part that we're particularly concerned about. This is the part that particularly pertains to our daily lives and how we live and what we do and where we go. When we begin to look at God's revealed will for our lives and how we are to understand it, we see right at the very outset that there are an awful lot of things in the Scriptures that we are told are specifically God's will for our lives. We don't have to think about these things. We don't have to pray about these things. We don't have to ponder over these things. We don't have to seek counsel really about these things because they are crystal clear in God's Word. The first of these things is it's God's will that we be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is 
good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires what? He desires, He wills all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are all people saved? They are not. But there is a sense in which in the revealed will of God He desires, He wills that people be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing or willing that any should perish, but all that all should reach repentance. So here we have a distinction between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God, don't we? Because we understand that in the secret will of God, God ordains all things. He ordains those who will be saved. He chooses He brings the gospel to. He ordains the means even that are going to get the gospel to the individuals. And He brings them about the faith to be saved. And He secures them all the way to the end. And yet according to God's revealed will, what's revealed to us, is God wills that everyone be saved. The first thing you need to understand about your life as you're living it, is that God desires that you be saved. He has done everything necessary, everything necessary to provide for your salvation. He has sent His very own Son to live, to die, to be crucified, to bleed, to die, to be buried, and raised again. That you might believe upon Him, and upon believing upon Him, repenting of your sin and entrusting your life to Him, find eternal life and be saved. If you're wondering, what is God's will for my life? That's the first question that you have to ask. Am I saved? Because that's the first part of God's will for your life. And if you miss that part, the rest of it will always be an enigma for you. It's God's desire that you be saved. Now, you may or may not believe the gospel, repent of your sin, and entrust your life to Christ, but it's His will that you do so. He desires that you would do so. And if you choose to reject Jesus Christ and refuse the salvation that's offered to you, You'll never, be, you'll never have any success at understanding God's will for your life. The rest will be hidden. You'll just wander around making your own decisions and doing what you want to. It's God's will for us to be saved. We know it's God's will for us to be sanctified. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I mean, it's clear. God not only wills that you be saved, but He wills that you grow up, that you mature. He, 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 he wills that you grow in holiness more and more into the image of Jesus Christ? Should I pursue the sanct- my sanctification? Should I go to church? Should I engage in discipleship? Should I do the- study God's Word? Should I pray? All of those things fit under the title of sanctification. And the answer to the question is, yes, you should. It's God's will for you to do such things. It says so. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 tells us other things. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's God's will for you to be grateful. It's God's will for me to pray. It's God's will for us to rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 also leads us into something we don't think about too often, and that's the idea that it's God's will for us to suffer. It's God's will for us to suffer. Therefore, let those, 1 Peter 4.19, who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. James talked about it in James chapter 1, didn't he? 
Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's going to happen. It's part of your life. It's part of how God builds into you maturity and perseverance and character. You will suffer. It's part of God's will for your life. So it's foolish for us every time suffering comes into our life to wonder if we've sometimes got, somehow gotten out of God's will. Maybe if we've done something really foolish and there are consequences for it, but not always. It may be that we're just suffering as a part of God's will. That's what Peter's readers found. Certainly some of James's readers. And Jesus said, look, if they hated me, they're going to also what? They're going to hate you. If they're going to persecute me, guess what? If you follow me, they're going to persecute you. Expect it. It's part, of, it's part of the plan. It's God's will that we seek Him and His kingdom first. That we serve Him and we seek His kingdom. The Bible tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, right? His righteousness. And then all these other things will be added unto you later. It's God's will that we minister to other people, Romans 14. It's God's will that we do good works. It's God's will that we evangelize lost people. All of those things are part of God's will. They're, they're clear. You know, if, if your neighbor is lost, you don't have to pray about, is it God's will for me to go share the gospel with them or not? The answer is yes, it's God's will for you to go share the gospel with them. It's not a question of God's will, it's a question of your will. Am I going to minister to others and be a part of the body of Christ? The answer is yes. That's God's will for your life. It's not a question of God's will. It's a question of your will. Are you going to do it or not? But it is God's will. Those things are clear. But what about all the matters that are not so clear? What about the things that are not so explicit? The many decisions that that we have to make all the time that are not specifically spoken to like these things. Like what job do I take? What city do I move to? How many kids should I have? Who do I marry? All of those kinds of questions. How do I know God's will for those kinds of matters? I'll give you just sort of a couple of, of things here for that. The, the first way that we understand God's will, or the first way that God reveals His will to us for such things, is through His Word. Through His Word. As Jim read to us this morning in Psalm 119, and he could have read to us from also from Psalm 119, because Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a, do you know the rest of this? It's a light to my path. It is a very simple illustration of the fact that if we want to understand the path that we're to walk, that we are to search for it by the searchlight of God's word. His word enlightens the path for us. His word becomes sort of the light that shows us the way in which we should walk. The Word of God reveals the will of God. It illuminates the path so I know what to do, so I know where to go, so I know where not to go. It's absolutely impossible for any of us to consistently know God's will and to consistently make wise decisions if we're ignorant of God's Word. It's why it's such an important piece to uh, Christian maturity. It's why it's such an important piece to the corporate body of Christ because Wise decision-making and an understanding of God's will, are, they come to us through God's Word. They come to us. It's the light that shows us these things. It requires constant study. It requires uh, a working familiarity with the, the, the words of the book. That's why we're called to uh, let the Word of Christ dwell in us. How? Richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Because it opens up our eyes to God's will. And it opens our eyes to the directions in which we should go. But how does it do that? How does the Word of God function in this way? 
remember when I was young, I used to think of the Bible kind of like an encyclopedia. You know, whenever I wanted to know something, I would just go to the, to the back, because my Bible when I was a kid had a, like a topic index. Did yours, do you have that? And I would look for that topic, and I'd just look at all the verses related to that and see if I could figure out, you know, what I wanted to know about that particular issue. Sometimes we think uh, of the Bible that way as sort of a reference work where we just go and, uh, and look at a topic and try and find as many verses as we can and hope that it, we can find some verse somewhere that speaks to us about our situation. But the Bible in general does not typically work like that. It doesn't normally give us specific guidance for every particular detail of every decision that we need to make in every circumstance. What we get when we open up God's Word is we get commands, we get principles, and we get a call to live wisely. And those things are important for us. The Bible lays out for us many, many precepts. Precepts. Precept is another way of saying a command. Do this, don't do that. We understand those, right? Do this, don't do that. Those are easy. We find many of those in Scripture. Clearly marked statements which command us to do something or forbid particular things. So this is sort of one of the first ways in which God's Word shows us His will. It tells us specific things we do, we should do, and it tells us other things that we ought to not do. So we have examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's a precept. It's a command. Okay? So if you're single and you're thinking about getting married and you're going to come to the pastor and you're going to say, Pastor, I'm thinking about marrying this wonderful woman. She's got all these wonderful characteristics. She's beautiful and she's winsome and you know, she, she tickles all the right spots in my life. You know what I mean? But this is one thing. She's not a Christian. I think, I think this is the one for me. No, she's not the one for you. I don't care what she tickles or how pretty she is or how smart and winsome she is. I don't care. It is clearly not God's will for you. Because God has given us a precept in His Word which says, Do not do this. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. One application of that is, Do not get married to someone who does not share your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now people disobey that. And often pay great consequences, and sometimes God redeems that and makes it into something. But the clear principle, excuse me, the clear precept is don't do it. So that's one of those decisions we're making in life. We go to God's Word, and there's a precept that tells us, in this case, in my situation, don't do this. End of story. I don't need to look any further. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Well, I'm thinking about pushing the the envelope here on how I'm going to behave in the area of my sexual life. Don't do it. It's not God's will for you. We have a precept here that says God's will is that you abstain from these kinds of things. Don't do it. It's not God's will for you. We could go back to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue in the Old Testament. You know, thou shalt not do certain things. Don't lie. Don't steal your neighbor's stuff. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't dishonor God. You know, a number of things that are clear precepts for us. Do this, don't do that. But there's not precept for every decision we have to make, is there? 
So then we zoom out to another way that God's Word speaks to us about His will. We zoom out to what, what we could call principles, which are simply unlike precepts, which give us specific guidance on specific issues. Principles are sort of general guidelines which require sort of discernment and maturity to apply to a particular situation. They're general guidelines that could apply to a lot of different scenarios of life. Principles. You reap what you sow. It's a principle that can be applied in a lot of different scenarios of life. To understand the difference between precepts and principles, we can think of road signs. A precept is speed limit 55. It's a precept. That's the rule. 55. 55. Not 59. 55. Go 55. Not more. That's what the precept. A principle would be a road sign that says drive carefully. Right? That's not the same as drive 55. That's drive carefully. And drive carefully could mean a lot of different things depending on the particular circumstances. If it's sunny and the road is dry, drive carefully means one thing. If it's snowing and the road is ice covered, drive carefully means something altogether different. It's a principle that guides us. It isn't specific. It depends on the circumstances in some ways and requires some level of maturity and discernment to to sort through. Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's another principle. How would that apply in a particular situation of life? Well, let's, let's say we're considering two job opportunities. I, I'm employed by, uh, you know, XYZ company and I have two job opportunities, one in Chicago and one in... Arizona. I don't know. I can't think of another place. Um, how do I decide which one to go to? Do I go to Do I go to Chicago or do I go to Arizona? Do I take the job here? Do I take the job there? Well, we're going to think about some practical things of life. What does the job pay? What are the benefits? What is the cost of living? And so on and so forth. In the various scenarios, those are sort of the practical considerations of life. But applying Matthew 6.33 to that particular ceremony, I'm going to zoom out and I'm going to ask, okay, how does the principle of seeking first the kingdom of God inform my decision on going to Chicago or Arizona? I begin to step back and ask the questions. Well, I know God's will is that I seek His kingdom and that I invest myself in His kingdom. Is, there, is it possible that in one of the two scenarios I have better opportunity to seek God's kingdom, to invest in the work of His kingdom than in the other? That might help me. To decide. Over here in Arizona, there's, a, there's a, a faithful body of believers I know that I can connect with and be a part of and invest in the kingdom. And I happen to know that there's an incredible lostness in Arizona that's different from this place near XYZ in Chicago. And there'd be lots of opportunities for sharing the gospel. There are all these different ways of looking at this. What does it look like for me in this scenario to seek first the kingdom of God beyond the pay, benefits, cost of living, and so forth? principles that help guide us. When we look through the precepts and we don't have a particular precept that then gives us specific guidance and we zoom out the principle and there's not a clear principle that gives us direction to go A or B, we, we can zoom out even more broadly and just look at the concept of wisdom. Ephesians 5 verses 15 through 17 says, we're called to live wisely. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
So there's precepts, there's principle, and there's this general overarching sort of guidance that says we're to live with wisdom. We're to live wisely. And we can look to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament to give us a good definition of what wisdom living looks like. So I'm, I'm making a decision, A to B. I look for precepts. Is there anything clear that says, do this, don't do that? No. I move out to principles. Are there any principles that help guide me to decision A or decision B? No. I step back and say, okay, does wisdom dictate one or the other? If the answer to that question is no, then what do you do? Well, here's an answer. It's easy. You do whatever the heck you want to do. Just do whatever you want to do. You do what you desire to do. Do what you want to do. You pick one. I like Arizona. It's hot there. I don't like Chicago. They drive crazy. I'm going to Arizona. That's how you decide. That's what I want to do. It's the principle of freedom. That we, we, on the, the level of desire. If there's not a clear precept, if there's not clear principles that guide us one way or the other, if wisdom doesn't dictate one way or the other, then you do what you want. I go where I want to go. I choose what I want to choose. I buy whatever house I want to buy. I get whatever car I want to get. I marry whatever you know, gal I want to marry. I mean, not me. I'm already. But you, if you're looking. I have as many kids as I want to get. Do I have kid number four or just stop with three? Have as many as you want. What do you, what do you want? Do you want four kids or do you want to stick with three? You pick. John MacArthur, one of my heroes of the faith, in talking about this particular issue, he's, he's, he's a pretty blunt individual, um, if you've read much of his work. He says this one time. He says, people, he says, people ask me sometimes, why did you come to Grace Church? I wanted to come, is his answer. There wasn't anything mystical. I didn't hear voices in my head. Did I know all this was going to happen? No, I just came here because I wanted to come. I said, this is a good place. They want me. Nobody else wants me. I want to go. It wasn't like I had a lot of options. People say, how did you decide to marry Patricia? That was easy. I wanted her and no one else. And I said, God, that's the one I want right there. And I believe you're controlling my wants. So I'm marrying her. It's pretty blunt. But there's something incredibly freeing about that, isn't there? Do we understand that God's will is not a chain around my neck in every detail of my life? That there are some precepts and there are principles and there's an overarching wisdom that I need to consider in making a decision? But beyond that, I don't have to stress out and freak out about every little thing in my life. I just make a decision and go. I just, just do it. The Nike thing, right? Just marry who you want. Go where you want. Take whatever job you want. Buy whatever house you want. There's no need for paralysis by analysis. Some of you are well acquainted with that, right? Kevin DeYoung, and I highly recommend his book on God's will if you're interested in pursuing this further. He wrote it, I don't know, 2009, 10, somewhere in there. It's called Just Do Something. Uh, and the, the whole, you can imagine from the title, the whole thrust of his book is, you know, he's coming at the idea that many believers do nothing, and the excuse is, well, I'm waiting for God's will. And his response to that is the title of the book, Just Do Something. Don't sit around trying to figure out God's will in every detail. Just get out there and do something. He says this in that book. So go marry someone, provided you're not equally yoked. Excuse me, provided you are equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. 
But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future and for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. I like that. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you'll be in God's will. Just go out there and do something. He's right. He's right. No need for us to be racked with anxiety and fear all the time. Are we in God's will? Are we out of God's will? Are we Hardee's or, or McDonald's? You know, do I get up at 10 or do I get up at 9? Do I go here or do I go there? One of the reasons that we're racked with anxiety, I think, is because we're afraid of what the future holds and we really want God to show us how it's all going to work out before we decide. Isn't that really what we want? I mean, we really want God to show us how's this thing going to go? How's this thing going to turn out? I need to know what the end of the road looks like before I you know, decide which way I want to turn here. And so we don't want to make a decision because we're not sure on this end of the road what looks like on that end of the road. And what we're really saying when we're saying I'm waiting on God's will is we're saying I'm waiting for God to give me a, a vision of the future to tell me how this is all going to turn out. And listen, that's not how God works. That is not how God's work. God, how He works. God is far more concerned about us being transformed than He is about us being informed. He's much more concerned about us walking by faith and trusting Him day by day than He is about telling us the future so that we know before we choose where it's going to go. It's not how His will works. His will works by saying, you trust me. You live according to my word. You live according to the precepts and the principles and the overarching guidance of, of wisdom. And then you pursue what you want and you trust me. You make a decision, you head down the road, and you trust me. You don't know the future, but I know the future. And that should be enough. And I promise to get you to the end safely. So you can choose. And it's okay. And if something bad happens along the way, you don't have to freak out and say, Oh no, I made the wrong choice. Kevin DeYoung says this, We must renounce our sinful desire to know the future and to be in control. We are not gods. We walk by faith, not by sight. We risk because God does not risk. We walk into the future in God-glorifying confidence, not because the future is known to us, but because it's known to God. And that's all we need to know. Worry about the future is not simply a character tick. It is the sin of unbelief. It's an indication that our hearts are not resting and the promises of God. Just let that one sink for a minute. The Holy Spirit, I think, plays a, a significant and unseen role in this pic- picture. This is where talking about God's will gets a little tricky as you start to read different people who write on the, on the matter. There are those who will allow for some sort of a, of, a, of a slice of something subjective in the mix. And there are many who would outright reject any sort of subjectivism. But I would just commend to you this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul writes to the Philippian church, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not, also, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One of the implications I think that we, we can take from that text is that this, the Holy Spirit of God is working in us 
on two different levels, both in the, on the level of what we do and also on the level of what we want. And as he's shaping us into the image of Christ in our behavior, he is also shaping us into the image of Christ on the level of our desires and what we want. It's not just that our behavior is changing more and more into Christ-likeness, but the things that we want are also changing more and more into Christ-likeness. So the longer we live in submission to the words of the Word of God, as our minds are in submission to the Word of God, the Spirit of God is working at the level of our desires to cause us to desire what He desires. So we can say, based off of that, when I've looked at the precepts and the principles and the overarching guidance of of wisdom, I can then do whatever I desire because I trust that God is working in me the right kind of desires. I'm not just winging it on my own. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. I don't think that so much means that if I do what God wants, He'll give me what I want. I think it means when I delight myself in the Lord, He transforms my desires into His. And I get it. When I understand it that way, I can just choose. I understand. I want to go to Arizona, not Chicago. I don't know why I want to do that. Maybe I just think I want to do that. But somehow God's at work in that part of my life too, helping me to want something a certain way. I may not always understand that how that's playing out or working out when it's happening. Sometimes I can see it in retrospect. I'll give you a very brief example from my life just a few weeks ago. And I don't see this kind of thing very often, but on Easter Sunday I was really struggling with what sermon to preach, what text. And I'd worked for the majority of the week on a text in Acts. And it was, it was just a mental roadblock the whole way along. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way into Thursday. It just wasn't coming together, and I don't know why it wasn't coming together. I was frustrated, agitated, irritated, faithless. Yeah, you can put that in there as well. And mad, you know, because Sunday's coming ever closer, and you're coming ever closer, and your eyes looking at me are coming ever closer, and I'm getting to Thursday and going, I got nothing. I mean, I just got nothing. This is just nothing. And uh, by Thursday, it's like, okay, I got to do something else. And uh, I I didn't understand what, what, what that was about, and shifted to the other passage that I ended up preaching and dealing with the issue of hope and so forth and crafting all of that. And even on the Easter Sunday morning when I came in to preach, I was very, very unsettled about what I was doing. It just felt, I don't know, just the subjective part of that, whatever it is that was going on in me, it just, I didn't understand. And it was unclear. But it was what I had, so it was what I did. And, and to be honest with you, when it was done, I was just glad it was done. I was just glad it was done, you know. Um, and I walked out after the second service and was doing what I normally do, talking to people out. And, and this dear couple from Winston-Salem stood off to the side. I could see him in my peripheral vision waiting around to talk to me. And they came up and, and, and talked to me and, you know, introduced themselves. said, we were from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we want you to know that that was the sermon that we needed to hear today. If you remember it, I know you remember all of the sermons that I preached by heart. Um, Easter wasn't that long ago. I, that, the introduction of that sermon, I talked about sort of a chronic issue of hopelessness, and I had given some examples from being in the Navy and out to sea and so forth. Um, and they said three years ago, our 13-year-old son went to church on Easter Sunday with his parents and came home and got out a gun and shot himself. And our family's still reeling from that. And we want you to know that that issue of hopelessness is very close to home for us. And it's not just out in the world. It's also in the church. And, you know, 
I'm going, okay, God, even a dummy like me can get this part, okay? <clears throat> You've got these people coming from Winston-Salem, and I was going the wrong way, and they needed this, and so you had to get me on the right page, and so forth. I didn't understand any of that going into it. I didn't understand it until way afterwards. And it just seems like, okay, God, I can see how you're connecting dots that I don't know anything about. And God often works that way. You often works that way. And it's on the level of desire. He has access to that part of our lives. And He does for you too. So what does it mean if the Lord wills? How do we live according to the will of the Lord? Well, we live according to the will of the Lord by living according to the word of the Lord. By looking at our life through the lens of His, of his precepts and His principles and a general call to wisdom. And then we're free to choose. Go do what you want. Go live where you want. Eat what you want. Assuming you're not a glutton. You know, you understand. We need to free ourselves from a slavery to anxiety and fear about the will of the Lord. We need to free ourselves from a paralysis that doesn't allow us to make any decisions or take any risks because we're afraid of how things are going to turn out. Because somehow we're afraid of being out of God's will. We need to be able to just live our lives in freedom. In freedom, under the, under the, in submission to the Word of God. In freedom. Being able to make decisions with confidence and joy and commitment. And being able to choose according to the desires of our heart. And to pursue that with all of our heart. Knowing and trusting that we're walking by faith in every decision. And that God is with us. And He's going to secure us all the way to the end. And that He will be working out His will in our lives in ways unseen that we may never know until the end. I don't know what decisions are in front of you right now that you're trying to figure out what God's will is for you. But look to His Word. Look to His Word. Live in submission to His Word. And then get out there and do what you want. Live in freedom. Live in joy. God's, God's will is not a tightrope over the Grand Canyon. It's being in the Grand Canyon. You have to climb out. Really. Just feel that freedom and choose. Take risks. Go places where you don't see the end before you choose. Don't be afraid. Don't live in anxiety and fear. Let God free you from those things. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I can say for certain that is God's will for your life. That today you be saved. That today you repent of your sin. That you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ who has lived and has died for you. That is God's will for your life. That you be saved. That you be forgiven. That you be redeemed. That you be welcomed into the body of Christ. And that Christ become your shepherd and Lord and Savior. If you don't know what it means to do that, if you're not sure how to, be, how to be saved, in just a moment after I pray, I'm going to be in the back of the room and there's some other men back there who would be happy to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Be the first step in pursuing God's will for your life. Will you submit to Him today? Let's pray. Father, there's something that's sweet and satisfying and securing about the reality that you are sovereign. 
that you have a secret will that is working all things out according to your good pleasure and that your pleasure is in the end good. That it brings the highest glory to you and in the end it brings the greatest good to us. That gives us comfort. That gives us confidence as we live our lives under you and in submission to your will and your word. But we understand that you have revealed to us some things and that you are interested and concerned about the decisions we make every day. That you are concerned that we live according to your word. That we obey you in the things you've commanded. That we live according to the principles you set out for us by which to live. And that our lives be marked by wisdom. And so I pray, Lord, that you would guide us in this area of your will. That we would be careful to walk according to such things. That we would be careful to to walk in submission to your word. That we would allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That we might understand your will and walk in it. Lord, for those who are racked in fear. For those who are just paralyzed by a need to know the future. Lord, just release them from that this morning. Just release them. Let them know that you know the future and that's enough. Help them to trust in you and to walk by faith with confidence that you love them, that you're caring for them, that you're shaping their desires and you're taking them where you want them to go. We thank you for the freedom that exists in walking with you, Lord Jesus. May we live in it every day, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. 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 Amen.